starting a new little mini-series, Re-Engage. It kind of comes under the larger umbrella of the Re-Series. Remember, we started out the new year with Restart, spent three weeks there. Refocus, spent three weeks there. Now we're talking about Re-Engage. We're talking about activating our faith. Now, some of the themes that we covered in the past few weeks, and we've covered a lot of different ground, but we're trying to, to right now get every, everybody sort of thinking about how to put our faith into play. And I really do believe that God has given all of us certain things to contribute in this, I guess it's fair to say, relatively speaking, short life of ours. It goes fast. And this life has a lot of uncertainties in it, ups and downs, twists, turns. How do we avoid getting stuck? We've been talking about that. That's how we started the year. How do we stay out of ruts? How do we get ourselves out of them when we're in them? How do we... How do we not get lost, disillusioned, cynical, stuck, paralyzed by difficult circumstances that maybe if we allow them to have dominance in our lives, will start to define us? That happens. Some of us are experiencing that now. We might have certain issues going on that we came in with here to this house. We've been struggling with certain things, some things that are happening in our lives. We didn't want them. We don't want them. It might be health-related might be relational, might have to do with our finances, something's going on in our job, we want a job. Might be a relationship issue. Maybe we really want one, maybe we're lonely. On a day like to this, who can't be reminded of those things sometimes? Fact of the matter is we're talking about how do we face life when life is tough. We've talked about how to, you know, how to walk through things even when we really can't control the outcome. When we can't, we can't make other people do things. At the end of the day, we don't, <laughs> that's sometimes the hardest thing is when we, when we care, when we've invested ourselves relationally and we can't control the outcomes. We can't do it. It can be hard. It can be very hard. Sometimes some of us struggle with our past. Again, we talked about this, not getting stuck there. Sometimes our past haunts us, trails us, and pursues us, depresses us. I don't know. It does make mistakes. Sometimes the hard, mis hardest mistakes of all get past are the ones that we can't really blame anybody else for. It's us. We did it. So we have to live with that. How do, we, how do we learn to appropriate the life of Christ into that? That's what we've been talking about. I want us to talk a little bit more about that in different ways. So we talked about, remember how in the book of James, some of the other things we covered, we talked about how once we, we see ourselves in the mirror, we aren't to look in the mirror, see what we are, and then walk away and not make the adjustment. How maybe sometimes God is trying to get our attention on something. We, get, we hear it, we feel it, but then we walk away and we forget it. Now, God wants us to follow through on our good intentions. And again, one of the benefits of being integrated in the community, beyond, I would even say, the level of just participating in a service, is the idea that we, we can be reminded of things that are important, the first things. Remember, we talked about it when it comes to the important things and anything short of an intentional commitment to the important is an unintentional, you know, uh, commitment, an unconscious commitment to the unimportant. So God really wants us to think about how we're structuring our lives. Now, I'm saying all that stuff, but the truth is, you know, we talked about giving our best, right? And we had some fun. Those of you who were here last, last week, you remember the story of the, the frozen turkey, right, for 28 years uh, that, that was donated to the church. Uh, talked about giving our best. And so, you know, I, I really feel like God wants to continue to grow things in us. So this is, this is going to be something that we're going to do here for the next few weeks that is going to focus on one of the great stories of Jesus. 
Jesus told stories. I think God hardwired us for story. We learn through stories. You could argue the human race is a long story. The way God made us is we, we, we are drawn in. We tend to suspend our disbelief. That's why we read things, watch things, because they draw us in. We begin to identify with something. It, it stirs our curiosity. We want to know more. Jesus used story as a teaching form, and he did it because oftentimes he was trying to reach a, a wide swath of people from different places, and he found that he, he knew it. He knew the human heart, and he knew that story was a way of engaging them. And so he used what we call parables. It's a story to illustrate oftentimes principles or spiritual truth that he might not be able to get across just from a kind of conventional way of sharing something conceptually. He would use a story to illustrate and get someone's attention, get us thinking in a different way. And so we're going to look at, as a kind of platform for this idea of re-engagement, we're going to look at one of the great stories that Jesus gave. It's called the story, the parable of the talents. Now we'll see that talents might mean a little bit different than we might think. But uh, I think it's, it's going to be worth us looking at it together and learning from it. Now, you'll notice in your handout uh, that there's a slight typo there because it's supposed to be Matthew 25. And that's where we're going to start. Matthew 25, verse number 14. For the kingdom of heaven is like a man traveling to a far country who called his own servants and delivered his goods to them. And to one he gave five talents, to another two, and to another one, and to each according to his own ability. And then immediately went on a journey. Now, the parable that Jesus is sharing, the story is about something that they would have immediately connected with because in their day, again, he used, he used analogies, illustrations that were something that they could understand that were going on in their real world. So when Jesus tells a story, he's telling it out of the context of the world that he's, he's engaged in. So in their day, but it's actually, there's a lot of crossover because in their day, the idea of, of a wealthy landowner, a businessman, uh, leaving his estate or his holdings, his business, to go on a journey to, say, you know, J Jerusalem or to another of the trading posts, even as far as Rome, potentially, to try to get something done. Uh, the, the idea that, that you would leave your, your business in the hands of trusted servants was something that people understood. It's no different than today. It'd be as if somebody who was engaged in business or a boss of ours comes to us and says, hey, you know what, I, I'm going to either be away or I've got these other projects I've got to manage. I need you to take this and I need you to get it done. The same principle applies here. He's going on a journey. He's going on it. It seems like it's business related. Jesus tells the story. He says he calls these servants in and to differing degrees, based on his assessment of their skill sets, he entrusts them with a different amount of entrustment. Some one, five, one, two, one, one. Watch what happens because again, it, oh, and by the way, in our day, if you're given something, there's, it's, the stakes are pretty high. It could cost us a promotion. You know, sometimes if we, you know, it might, there might be a bonus involved, something. Some of us, you know, we could get called on the carpet. We didn't execute it right. Worst case, worst case scenario. You could get fired, I suppose, right? You know how much you cost, right? You could get in trouble. But in Jesus' day, and they knew this, the stakes were even higher. The risk was high in some cases. The implications were pretty significant. Why? Okay, you could, you could earn your reputation and get it in concrete, right? If you did well, that was huge. But if you did poorly, you ran the risk, depending on the whim of the owner, the master, as he's called here, or the 
the one who's responsible, the boss in this case, depending on the nature of it, I mean, you could get in really, you could get real great, great praise, it could set you up for your life, or you get in real trouble. I mean, if you lost, you could get thrown into prison. Worse, if in some cases, you could even, it could even be lethal. So it was a big deal. If you lost what you were given and it was a lot, you, the, the, there was a different type of risk involved than even today. Keep that in mind because it's, gonna, it's really going to make it even more clear. So when Jesus tells the story, on the surface, it's about business and making money. It's about high stakes investment. Yes, business strategy about taking risk. It's a, but it's also about what people do when the pressure is on. Oh, and, well, and a talent. We think of the word talent. When we read here the parable of the talents, you were given five talents. A talent is not like, we think of a talent today. Uh, we think of what, something that we're good at. We say, oh, man, they are talented. She's a talented singer. Whoa. And they got a talent for that. The idea of you're, you're good at something, you've got a unique skill. The talent, as Jesus is referring to it, is actually has to do with a sum of money. It could have been, depending on the way the metal was, it could have been as much as for a common day wa wage earner, it could have been 10 years wages. We're talking about a lot of money. So it may seem, oh, I could tell, it's not a penny. It's a lot of money. Oh, and by, you know, the other thing interesting is that the parable itself has made its way into our English vernacular. So the way we think it, the word we use now for talent, gift, capacity, is a word that goes all the way back to this teaching of Jesus, who first used it as an example of an entrustment, this sum of money that's an entrustment. So every time we hear someone being talented, remember, started with Jesus when he talked about the story that we're reading right now, okay? So here we go. As we come to verse 16, look at it with me. It says that, that uh, then he who had received five, so here's the question, right? It's centered around what the stewards, the managers do with their master's money. So Jesus says, then he who had received five talents went and traded with them and made another five talents. And likewise, right? He who had two gained two more. That's great. The first and second servants truly double their entrustments. The man with five follows the market, knows the state of the crops, the anticipated arrival of the Damascus caravans, gauges the harvest, succeeds fabulously. He turns it over and doubles it. Number two, two, two talented, trusted man does the same thing, doubles his. Ah, but the servant who was given one, he has a different approach. And that's who's going to get our attention because the one who had received one talent that went, and what does he do? It says in verse 18, he went and dug in the ground and he hid the Lord's money. Now again, all three of these guys shared a common des desire, right? They, they, they want to please their boss. I mean, th even the one talent servant wanted to please. His motive is not to, to do anything but. I mean, he's very motivated. He has good intentions. The difference is, though, that while the five and the two took a risk and invested their entrustments, the one talent man plays it safe. And, and as we shall see, he plays it way too safe. He's, he's so afraid of losing, he buries it. Now, in Jesus' time, burying money actually had its merit. And there are because there are, the bank was a risky, it, had, it was low risk, but it had risk. Not like, you know, today... You know, we have things, 
because of what's happened in our world, you know, we have things in, the, in our country, like the FDIC, there's a certain amount of money that's guaranteed you theoretically we can get it back if the bank lost it. But there are a lot of third world countries today and countries today where banks, you, you understand why some, some people don't put their money in their banks. This, he thought, well, I can't afford to lose it, so I'm going to bury it. And it was a safe, it seemed like a safe alternative. And again, I look back, on, and it, you know, a lot of us now, we are, I mean, even coming out of the re recession period a decade or so ago, we, we still, we, we only can, we've only read about things like the Great Depression. You see, it, we think of it in black and white. And shanty towns and documentaries and things like that. When I was growing up as a boy, I remember talking to my grandfather and people of his generation, especially the early part of the World War II generation, sometimes called the great, greatest generation. And they, that generation had come through the Depression. At least they, they had watched many times their parents. They'd watched people lose everything. I mean everything. No banking. Banks collapsed. Systems collapsing. Uh, people committing suicide, throwing themselves out of windows here at Market Street. All right, we're talking about from wealth to nothing. And people lost all kinds of, all their investments. So what happened was, the reason I'm bringing this up is because that generation had a certain perspective, even after they came out of the, the World War II, which was a, created an interesting arc. There was a real prosperity that came because the United States had a unique place in the world. Our economy started booming. We, we were one of the few who came out of that, um, comparatively speaking, unscathed in our homeland. And we were set up for a season of prosperity. So even, but even as people started prospering in the 50s and 60s, which creates its own social dynamic, by the way, because only a prosperous generation can do certain things. But that's a whole other rabbit trail that we will not go down. They, many of them, even though they were making money, harbored, and I knew because I would talk to them, and I try to understand, they harbored fear. And the fear was you can't really, you, you don't spend, you don't get in debt, and you have to be really careful where you put your money. Because they had, wit they had witnessed banks, they had witnessed banks collapse, they had witnessed places where things fell apart completely and everybody lost everything. So I say that because it reminded me of something that happened. And again, so they got, some of them were very fearful. And you hear stories about people hiding money in their mattresses and things like that, not putting them in their banks. Now today, there's different ways that people take advantage of people. But cash is, was dominant in that, is, it was dominant. So I remember I was just starting out as a pastor here at the church. I was still in my 20s. My grandfather had died, and he had been kind of my mentor, and he had, been, he had founded the church. When I, when, I, when I started serving in this capacity, I was, our church was about 70 people at the time. And one of them, a few of them had gone all the way back to, they were older, they were part of his original group. And I remember one of those families, they were, they were just a couple at the time, and he had been working, uh, he had just retired, he had retired, and he and his wife lived. But he, he, had lived, he, was, he was afraid of putting his money in the bank. And the reason I remember it stuck out to me, because it happened early in my, in my pastorate to where I go, I, it, it was a harsh reality of life. I, I remember him telling me with tears, came into this building with tears, uh, they, he had put, he, he had put a majority of his, 
I didn't know it, but the majority of his retirement funds and life savings he had in cash, and he had hid it in his closet because he was afraid of what the banks would lose it. And what happened was, and we're pretty confident who it was, but they could never prove it, but there was some repairmen that came in to do some work. And they, they were, it was somewhat costly. It wasn't, he wasn't paying with credit. And he, when it came time to pay the bill, he went back into a room and he had his, where his money was hidden. He brought back some, not, they couldn't see it, but they just saw him come out with these large bills and pay them. Well, about a week later, when they were out, someone broke in and knew exactly where to go, what room to, and all the money was, was taken. And I, I still, to this day, have the memories of that conversation. But he was, they were so afraid that they hid it, and they ended up losing it. <sighs> Thank you for encouraging me, Pastor. That was a really great story you just told us. <laughs> I really appreciate that. <laughs> I'm sorry. But it does make the point. And you know, I was going, oh, I've never forgot that. I'm going to share that. Um, but, you know, I, someone said, well, what did, why did you share that story? What is the moral of the story? I said, you know, that's a really good question. But it does fit when it comes to, <laughs> don't bury your mind. Don't hide cash, right? Don't, you know, make a limit. Uh, but the thing is, it never, I, somehow I never forgot that. And I always, whenever I read this parable, and I think of the one man burying his, his talent in the ground very carefully, right? Taking furtive glances, making sure no one notices. I must keep the money safe. When the master comes back, he will know, I did not lose his money. It's all here. Safe. He's going to be happy when I give it all back. I know him. Okay, watch what happens. After a long time, the Lord of those servants came. Look, read it with me. After a long time, the Lord of those servants came and he settled the accounts. And reading this in kind of the uh, slightly older version language, but it has a poetic component to it. So he, he who had received five talents came and brought five other talents, saying, Lord, you delivered me five. Again, talents, sum of money. Here's the entrustment. You gave me five. I want you to know something. Here it is. Five more. I doubled it for you. Oh, you good. You're good. I'm going again. I'm going to remember that. You know what? I am pleased with you. You've done amazing work for me. Thank you. You bring me great joy to have you working for me. And two man comes in, brings his, I had the two. You gave it to me. I want you to know something. I doubled it for you. Oh, amazing work. Well done. Everything I thought you could do, you did it. Excellent. Excellent work. Enter into the joy that I have for you. What does it say? Then the one who had been given one comes in. Watch what happens, right? And as he's settling these accounts, he says to him, then he who received one talent, verse 24, the one who received the one talent came and he said, Lord, now watch what he says. And we're going to talk about this in the next couple of weeks. He says, Lord, I knew you were... Boss, I, I, I know you're a hard man, but with that, I think he means that you, you don't fool around. You take this very seriously. I know that. And because I know that, that you reap where you haven't even sown, you know how to do business. You know how to make profit. You're good at what you do. You know, I know I'm not that good. But what I can do is I keep, I do not lose what I'm given. 
And I was afraid that I would somehow disappoint you and lose what you gave me. So you know what I did? And I hope you're pleased with this. I went ahead and I dug, it, I dug a hole. And I put it in there. And I hid it. And I made sure I didn't lose one penny. And so you know what? Here it is. All back. What do you think? Now, we're going to find out what he thinks. But the fact of the matter is, in his mind, he's thinking he's done great. Now, there, now when Jesus tells this story, he says, everything you gave me, it's all there. It's all there. Everything. Now, our focus, and this, this parable has dual meanings. It has an eschatological, which means it has to do with the, 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 the Jesus' leaving and his entrustment. But really, at its core, it has everything to do with what happens when Jesus is away and how do people who claim to love him and follow him honor him with their lives. That's the principle. How He cares how we engage life on his behalf. He cares about how we live. He cares about how we love. He cares about how we serve. He cares about how we give. He cares about what he, he has given us, and he cares about what we do with what he's given us. I'll just put this up on a couple of little heading thoughts and just working off of what we've just shared. Here's number one, all right? Number one. The quality, think of, I want us to think about this, the quality of our life matters. Now, when I, uh, I, I'm, what I mean is not whether or not we, we have the, and I'm going to use this in quotes, the good life. Now, if, I were to add, if we were to take a, a, a feedback here around and get an assessment of what everybody just felt was the good life, there's certainly a dominant American perception of the good life. I'm not talking about the good life in terms of possession, lifestyle, comforts, things like that. What Jesus is talking about is the quality life. And a quality life is different than the good life. Because a quality life is really how we live in love. And it's how we give our life away. According to Jesus, it's sort of like the fragrance of our life. Are we seeking to live with quality? Is there a depth to us? Do people trust us? Are we kind? Are we respected, perhaps, feared, perhaps, disliked? Are we reliable? Or are we capable of saying extraordinarily vicious things? Do people feel who love us and are close to us feel safe around us? How do we represent him by the way we work, the attitude we work with? How do we get past things? How do we apply our faith to real issues? What about our character? What about our struggles? What about the depth of who we are as a person? Is there any depth? Or do we live life at a relative surface level, numbing it over time with things like, you know, trivial things, entertainment? It's not bad. It's just that's not what makes a deep, doesn't deepen us. That's why sometimes I think pain and brokenness can actually become a gift to us if it forces us to wrestle with things that allow God's grace to penetrate us. You know, last week we mentioned what we talked about over the last few weeks. Remember we talked about the tension between grit and grace? How there are some things that God wants us to have more grit. He wants us to be more courageous, face them, um, not run, not quit, as we, we can do. All of us have weak zones, and we don't always quit the same way. We can quit by just not caring. I'm present, but I'm not there. That's a quit. 
We might never run away, but we ran away. That's a runaway. That's not the Lord's way, as we're going to see. And so this idea of grace, sometimes there's things we're not strong enough. We're not going to make it. We need grace. This grace comes in. This, this interaction of between grit and grace, between learning, Lord, when, can I, when do I need to not run and just be a little more, I need to, I need to work a little, I need to persevere. Help me. And there are times where I say, Lord, I can't do it. I need you. I need your grace. In my weakness, I need your grace to help me because I cannot do this. I really can't. I know it. That's a place of brokenness, and that broken place is often where God's deepening comes in. That's why, you've heard me say this countless times, at least I've said this, um, not all wins are wins and not all losses are losses. Sometimes what looks like a loss is actually a win because it's changing who we are. It creates an openness, a gap in us that wouldn't have presently existed. Thank you, Jesus. So we're talking about the quality of life, um, the way we treat people, love people. Anyway, years ago, I was thinking about it because it also speaks about our gifts and our themes, right? The gifts, the passions, the satisfactions, that place where those things intersect. The quality of our life, ah, you know. I, I was, okay, don't get, uh, all right. I'm going to do another film reference. Now, I know. I know it's like, Pastor, man, what do you do all day? I mean, come on. It's like, but I, I remember um, years ago speaking about this idea of passions and God and gifts. And I remember watching a movie uh, that ended up winning in, in, in the, the Best Picture of the Year Award. It was, it was in 1981 the film was made, Chariots of Fire. And in 19, it won the Best picture in, in 82, but it, it was made in 81. And 81 was a great year for me. It was a, that was a great year. It was. For me personally, I mean, it was the year I started college. I graduated. It was the year I started dating the woman who is my wife. How appropriate on Valentine's Day for me to say that. <laughs> Best decision I made. Uh, and I remember uh, how wonderful she was when I met her, and she still is. And uh, she's beautiful on the outside, but really, her greatest beauty is on the inside. Uh, <laughs> there is no cornerstone, uh, besides it exists, without, without her. So 81 was a great year. It was also the year the Niners won their first Super Bowl, I might add, and, <laughs> and I remember the catch, right? The catch, that was the, it was a lot of good things happened in 81. But it was the year I saw that film, Chairs of Fire, and I was only 18. And I remember him because he was a man of faith. He was a Christian, and he was, Eric Liddell was part of that film. And he had these deep convictions around what he could do and not do. He just, it was his personal convictions about how he was supposed to honor the Lord in his life. But he was a runner, and he was good. And they asked him a question, how, he, how his faith and his, his passion intersected. And he says, you know, when it comes to running, I know some of us have heard this line, but when I run, I feel his pleasure. When I run, I feel his pleasure. There are certain things we do, we just, it, you, you feel God's pleasure. And I, I think it was Irenaeus, one of the early church fathers, who said, the glory of God is a man, and we would say a man, a woman, fully alive. There's something there. 
There's something there. The quality of our life matters. Number two, just put this up real quick. I think we all have something that we've been entrusted with to care for on God's behalf. Look at the back end of that statement, though. So there's no room for envy or pride. We may argue or complain or compare that we haven't been given what another person has, but we have all been given a portion to put into play. That's one of the principles here. We've all been given something to honor God with. Now, we can get stuck in the unfairness of life. That's true. I mean... I was looking at this, I was going, look, the one and two talented trusted servants could have felt like they were being disrespected. I mean, what's the master always giving him the five? What about us? You know why he says he gives him five? Only two. You only got one, but he got two. <laughs> I got two. It's like, why? You know, I was, I was thinking about this scenario, you know. The, the one could have, <laughs> the one could have envied the two. The two could have envied the five. The five could have said, clearly, I'm superior to these guys. And the two could have said, well, at least I'm better than the one. All going on all the time. And you know, I was looking at that, I was like, wow, you know, envy, boy. We need to guard against either feelings of envy or feelings of pride. There is so much in life we do not control. I know you know that. We, where we were born, who our parents are, the time in history that we've been allowed to exist in, the country we've grown up in. The Bible reminds us not to care uh, too much in the sense that we start to compare, but rather we are to honor our entrustment for what it is. Here's the deal. Envy is worthless. It's worthless. Who cares um, what others have that we do not? Their blessing is not our loss. It's easy to struggle here especially when we feel left out or underappreciated. And you know what I've noticed? Some of us, it's the hardest sometimes is not with other people. It's the people we're close to. We both want something, and they get it. It gets really hard to rejoice with that. I want to be happy for you. But your gain oh, kind of feels like my loss. And there's something here. There's something here about a, a, a depth of what God's trying to do in us. And, and then I think that sometimes on the other side of the spectrum, others of us who sense our advantage, we might feel like, well, you know, I, I, look at this. Look at a, we need to really guard against pride. Because to whom much is given, much is required. In fact, the Bible talks specifically to teachers and says, don't many of you want to be a teacher necessarily, knowing that you will be held to a higher degree of accountability? Think twice. Ooh. See, in the Jesus way, this is especially true because we're consistently reminded that whatever we've been given, right, temporarily entrusted with, it's for the purpose. Don't ever forget this because if we lose this, it's for the purpose of honoring God. Whatever we've been tempor temporarily given, and we will be reminded of that, temporarily given to possess is to honor God and to bless others. Once we start losing that, we've lost it. How, I, how is this bringing honor to God? Temporary possess, it's fine. How am I, that's got to dump. It's true. A lot of life is not equal. Advantages, disadvantages abound. But the, the real issue here is not life's inequity or it, inequality. I, don't, I know there's a lot of discussion around what we have or what we haven't been given. No, the real issue is what we do with what we have been given. As Teddy Roosevelt said, do what you can with what you have where you are. What you can with what you have where you are. You are. And then the last one. Good intentions. 
are not enough. Courage and follow through is needed. Okay, stay. The one talent man, he meant well. His intentions were good. He was sincere, but he played it way too safe. This, as we shall see, was because he was afraid. And fear will do that to us. It will beat us down. It will shut us down. It will make us paranoid. It will cripple us. It will lie to us. It will intimidate us. It will get in our way. God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of soundness of mind, a promise we need to claim when we feel the fear trying to grip us. Because fear is a way of distorting reality. And fear causes us to close down our world and tighten our grips. And when we do that, we become suffocated. The way of the Lord is this, open to him. Not this, clutching. Do you want to know the great model? I'll we'll look at this, and this is how we will finish. Look what Jesus did, and he showed it in John 13. I mean, we're going to put this up. Check it out. This is how it, it says this. This was on the night of his betrayal. Just the last thing. Now, it says this, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come, that he should depart from this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Do you see that? He knew what was about to happen. He knew this was it. He knew that he was about, he was on the verge, literally going to be, he was going to be taken, he was going to be beaten, he was going to be humiliated, he was going to be stripped down, he was going to be hammered onto a tree, his enemies were going to wallow in victory and rejoice in his demise. He understood the physical component of it, he understood the pain that was awaiting him, all that, he saw it, he saw it. He also knew that in that room with the men that he was with, who he had invested his best into, who he was modeling and had modeled unto the end, he knew that they would all, every one of them, abandon him. Everyone, everyone. He would be alone, utterly alone, abandoned. He knew, he knows abandonment. And when he did, and when Jesus did that, it's like he's, he said, but notice what it says, knowing that, having loved them, he loved them to the end. He finished it. And that's what love does. That's what love does. A lot of talk about love. Love finishes. Knowing that, he loved them unto the end. He followed it all the way through. It didn't matter. He loved them to the end. That's powerful. That's intense. That's called giving our best. That's called courage. That's, it, it, courage only comes when fear is present. That's what the Lord wants to put inside of us. That's what the master modeled. Let's pray. All right, Lord, I thank you because your words are spirit and your words are life. And I know that you, you know, every one of us, we have something to contribute. It's true. I, for some of us, it, it may not seem obvious, but we all have something. Even if, even if our body doesn't work for us anymore, we can pray. Um, we can love. For those of us who have health, let's not waste it use it in some way for you. I ask the Lord that you would continue to work in our lives. Bind, bind those fears that bind us. The fears that bind us serve only to remind us of your grace. Allow, Lord, for us to be courageous and not fearful, burying things when we need to be playing our hands. Because we've been hurt, it's so easy to pull back but there are times where you will invite us and call us and challenge us to risk what we've been given, to take some risks to trust you. 
And I do pray that you keep working in our lives. I ask you for this. I bless you for it. I love you for it. Thank you for what you modeled for us, Lord. May we be more like you with the people we've been given to love. Huh. Just ask that in your name, Jesus. Amen. Amen.